Hello and welcome to episode four of the Low Tox Life podcast. Now today might sound like a little bit of a Debbie Downer topic being pesticides, but really what this isn't about, let's just get this out of the way right now, is about making you feel guilty for using produce that has been sprayed. No, it's not. It's not about making you feel guilty for not being 100% organic. I can't even lay that claim myself. And I have been inching towards more and more organic food for the past 10 years of my life. So perfection doesn't exist. Black and white doesn't exist. And we we don't want to be stressing out about what we can't achieve, but we do want to start getting empowered around the topic of pesticides and what it's doing to our environment and to us in the long term for our health so that we can put a bit of a fire in our belly to take another look at some of the organic affordability strategies, um, supply availability around us and see how practically we can start to inch a little further along our journey towards eating more and more organic foods. And there's a lot of creative ways to do it. And I discuss mindset today, as well as the ins and outs of the pesticides of the past and the ones that are being used today and what the difference is and what the dangers might be um, and what the priorities should be as we start to look at better food choices. So my guest today is a very dear old friend, and you will love this. We actually met when we were both running really well-known nightclubs in the early 2000s in Sydney's CBD. So, you know, everyone's got a past, people, and uh, mine happens to be the cosmetics industry and then, of course, hospitality, uh, which some of my long-term community members might know. Uh, so Tabitha and I have moved on um, quite considerably from our nightclub and bartending days, and uh, and Tabitha's actually an incredibly experienced experienced health practitioner. Now she's a naturopath, a clinical uh, nutritionist, and she's been practicing for over a decade. And what I love about Tabitha is she is so earnest. She never stops learning and she is always inching further and forward and beyond into the absolute depths of current research across whatever she might speak about. So you can really feel comfortable and confident when you hear someone like Tabitha to speak with the integrity that she has is that she's not talking about information from when she studied 10 years ago, 15 years ago. She's studying every day now. And what I love is that there's that incredible trust that we're really looking at up to the minute information and science-based information when Tabitha speaks. So it's a really inspiring interview, I think. Please don't feel discouraged when we're talking about the nuts and bolts of what a pesticide is. It can be a real blow. You know, I've, I've been through this myself in terms of when you realise just what is done to our food and at, at what de- to what degree. So we're going to be moving past that realisation, that heaviness, and working on solutions as well. And in fact, you'll love this, um, especially if you love today's show, uh, by the end of today's show, we had seen that it was really, really clear that we needed to do a, a second interview. So um, we'll we'll be teeing that one up uh, for a couple of months' time. Now, I'm going to leave you here. Remember, there's always the show notes for any references that we give during our chat, and you can always find those at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. Enjoy today's chat on pesticides with the wonderful Tabitha McIntosh 
Josh. And if you have anything you want to share, of course, you can always use that Lotox Life hashtag across social media, uh, especially on Twitter and find me at Alex underscore Stewart. Enjoy the chat. I hope you will. I found it really, really uplifting overall. So I'll leave you there. And here she is, Tabitha McIntosh. Hi, Tab. How are you? Alex, I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I am so thrilled to have you as part of my launch month for the podcast because I just know we are going to really help people start to feel confident about this this icky pesticide topic. What do you reckon? Well, it is one of those issues that it's easy just to pretend it doesn't exist, isn't it? So I, I'm going to do my best to make it really friendly and approachable and uh, and practical. So... Yeah, this is it, isn't it? And I can just picture everybody at home just seeing the topic of today's discussion come up as a, oh, I don't even know if I want to go there kind of thing because, as you say, it's just sometimes easier to think, well, I'm eating fresh fruit and veg, so I'm doing okay. But um, I guess before we launch into today's topic, could you just tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how you came to be doing what you do today? Yeah, sure. Well, I feel um, like one of the luckiest people in the world because I get to do what I love doing all day, every day. And and what I love doing is obviously varied. But um, in addition to being a mum to beautiful uh, Jasmine, almost 10 and Max, almost eight, and obviously loving wife and all those things, um, I practice as a naturopath. So I run a private clinical practice as a naturopath in Wallara and I consult with sort of somewhere between six and nine uh, clients a day five days a week. Uh, and I, I work with families. I work with young children. I work with couples, preconception. I work with uh, women, men, uh, lots and lots of families just in in helping educate them and helping support them as they make uh, positive decisions to live well. And that might be just small incremental changes or swaps to what they're eating or to some aspects of their lifestyle. Um, and I, to, you know, to achieve what, what I currently do, I did do an undergraduate uh, medical science degree and uh, studied private naturopathy as well, which includes clinical nutrition and Western herbal medicine, massage, all those sorts of things. But I did, um, I did extend my studies and do some postgraduate work in the area of nutritional and environmental medicine. And that, that was actually between my first and second pregnancy such that I don't know, uh, you know, this elephant that had always been in the room sort of had the, the sheet taken off it as to how we are all so connected to our environment, uh, to the air that we breathe and the water that we drink and, you know, the environmental health of our bedroom where we spend a great deal of time and obviously to things that might be on our food, not just the nutrients and the enzymes and the macronutrients, but actually maybe even some of the residues on our food from food packaging or pesticides. So, um a little bit about me. I also teach at Endeavour and supervise the final year students and um, yeah. Wow. And so this just makes you the absolute perfect person to come and chat to us today about pesticides. I, I, I thought of you straight away when I was mapping out some of my, my big topics that I wanted to hook into this year. Um, to the uninitiated, as we said at the start, it is scary. However, we do need to tackle this. And if if we can come away from today with people feeling like they have some really simple strategies in place um, and the information that we all need to make the better choices, then I reckon we've won. So 
Let's start on exactly how pesticides came to be used. Obviously, they're to kill pests, but what was kind of what were those first pesticides used? What was the sell on getting them into the market? How did how did it all come about? Well, um, you know, pesticide, even that uh, sort of second half of the word eyesight is, uh, reflects the Latin word to kill. And really pesticides came into their own, particularly the old school organochlorine pesticides came into their own around about the time of the Second World War to combat really serious diseases like malaria and typhoid. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if I was to say name a pesticide, you know, most of us would be able to name something like DDT. And DDT is one of these old school organochlorine pesticides that was sort of hailed as a wonder drug or a wonder chemical. Uh, because it was extremely effective at uh, combating and eradicating some of these problems that we had, um, you know, internationally with World War II with with the insect and and insect-borne disease like malaria and typhoid. So after the war was was over, uh, DDT had been found to be just so effective, um, particularly when it came to things like crop yields had increased. And, and with DDT being so affordable, actually, um, you know, it was it was really supported and marketed to housewives for keeping their house clean. And oh my you know, gosh, really? There is some look. I think we could probably put it up at the bottom of our uh, of our podcast when we're done. Some fantastic ads. Oh that, yes, you know, let's go DDT there. DDT makes a healthy me. You know, from the nineteen fifties, and it was really hailed and overused and and you've all seen those pictures of planes spraying over crop fields and there are even some of my clients and some of my previous students that remember those planes spraying DDT flying over the local swimming pool as all the kids were swimming and you know so it was very very heavily used and with you know the industrial revolution and the industrialization of food and us you know wanting to have access to foods all year round even if they're not in season and you know uh, there's also an economic interest with pesticides, obviously, because that we can harvest more times a year and the harvest of some of our fruits and veggies and grains can be faster. And in, in terms of consumer drives for, for pesticides through the 1940s and 50s and 60s, you know, there's no doubt about it that consumers, including us now, we like the convenience of having access to things all year round and we like it when our fruit and vegetable looks nice, you know, <laughs> and it looks fresh and crunchy. But look, um, not soon after, you know, I guess a couple of decades down the track, um, lots of environmentalists were were uh, making, a, making available the information as to some of the health compromises of DDT and some of these are going to chlorine. So I'm sure most of your listeners would have heard of the the book Silent Spring, which was a real game changer. A huge game changer. And don't panic, we'll be popping any of these key references in the show notes that you can access after today's podcast. For all of those keen beans that want to do more, more reading, there's so many places to go. But Silent Spring was published by the amazing environmentalist, uh, environmentalist and, and health advocate Rachel Carson in 1962. And she really she really uh, highlighted some of the detrimental effects, let alone the health effects, but particularly the environmental and wildlife effects that DDT was clearly having. And she was she was 
um, challenged widely by because of these um, economic interests in in chemicals um, and pesticide production companies. But uh, as it turns out, her her writing still stands true today. So look, eventually DDT and the old school pesticides were pulled from the market. I believe DDT was banned in Australia in 1987, so that covers a good 40 to 50 years of use. But even, you know, all those years, 30 years on after the banning in 1987, I just wanted to make mention that, you know, there's not a single creature that inhabits this earth that doesn't harbour even just the smallest amount of DDT in their own body. So DDT has been found in polar bears, birds, deep-sea fish, you know, whales, um, butter, even organic butter, and uh, and certainly there are traces of DDT, as awful as it sounds, even in even in our unborn babies. And this is just because, as a chemical, DDT biomagnifies um, in our bodies, and it bioaccumulates. It sort of biomagnifies up the food chain, I should have said, and bioaccumulates in our own bodies. And it has an extremely long half-life. And this was one of the other advantages of using it for all of those decades. It only requires a couple of sprays and applications and it lingers and lingers for decades. Mm. And this is the kind of stuff that, look, I mean, <laughs> I can't believe I'm actually going to say a sentence that maybe defends Monsanto. <laughs> yeah, but it, when you create things, sometimes you just cannot know what the future is for that thing. And yeah. if the thing is too good to be true, then often it is. But you know, like the makers of Teflon, the Dupont company, another huge chemical um, magnate, are. Uh, you know, these things never break down in our environment. And when it's being found in our unborn babies decades after it's been banned, then we have a problem. And uh, and it really brings, for me, to light this crazy thinking um, when it comes to chemicals and the release of chemicals into our food system or our cleaning and personal care where it's innocent until proven guilty. And even though there might be multiple studies, small studies, you know, coming out and saying, well, I think we better watch out with this one. It can sometimes take way too long for anyone big to listen to these researchers and actually say, hold on, well, let's stop using it until we can get some more conclusive evidence. No, no, we keep on using it until it's like absolutely toxically clear. Yeah, that's exactly and uh, so, yeah, you, what you're talking about is the precautionary principle, which which in Australia we still don't uh, wholeheartedly adopt. So I agree with you that, you know, it's we have to consider the ripple effects and, and uh, you know, in the instance of DDT, the ripple effect is really an ongoing one. So, so since it was pulled from the market, um, uh, a newer style of pesticides was introduced and we call these our organophosphate pesticides or our OP pesticides and they really have a very, very different chemical profile. So these are the ones we're going to be discussing today. Okay. When it comes to, you know, being on our on our produce and, uh, you know, in, in the dirt and in the water that then gets filtered that we might drink as tap water. So these organophosphate pesticides are currently in use mm-hmm. and um, they're significantly different because they've got a, a much shorter half-life. So really most adults can get on top of a dose of organophosphate pesticide from their, from some, you know, 
some groceries uh, in somewhere between six and 12 hours. So the half-life is closer to six hours and the majority of it is going to be gone or processed and out of the body, particularly metabolized at the kidneys, um, by the end of that day. Wow. And, which is which is really reassuring. So um, they also, the organophosphate pesticides, degrade much more rapidly. So they don't linger in the soil and in the water and in the flesh of animals and things like that for years and years. They, a bit of sunshine and some fresh air and they oxidise um, and they degrade much more rapidly in our environment. The problems with this are that we have to reapply them repeatedly on our foods at, at all different stages through the growth of, of a fruit or a vegetable or a grain from seed all the way through to harvest. So we have repeated applications of them. And I guess the problem with these organophosphate pesticides is many fold, um, not to mention that we're consuming them all day uh, and also that they tend to have quite a large or there's a large body of evidence that shows that they have an impact on a developing nervous system. Okay. And uh, the other big problem with them is that we all handle chemicals differently. So we all sort of break them down in different ways. So there are definitely going to be target populations that um, are impacted by these organophosphate pesticides more than others. Okay, right. So it's not all roses for the organophosphate family. No, they're, they're an improvement, but uh, they still come with their own set of problems. It's just that the ripple effect probably won't linger, linger in the environment for quite as long as DDT, but they're still having a very big impact. Okay, right. So to get our head around what exactly an organophosphate is, you know, I've done a little bit of research around this myself and things like metals come up, hormone disruptors, gut disruptors. Can you elaborate on what exactly is in there? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, they're, they're all kind of a little bit different, but they're essentially the organophosphate pesticides contain ingredients that are nerve agents. So they they act on an enzyme called acetylcholinesterases uh, and a family of enzymes and they, they block these enzymes such that they can have toxic nervous system effects. But what you've just mentioned about heavy metals and endocrine disrupting chemicals, the, the funny thing or the, I guess the disturbing thing about uh, a lot of the different categories of organophosphate pesticides is that it's not just the active organophosphate pesticide ingredient uh, there are adjuvants used in all of our pesticides that are not the active constituent but actually other active ingredients that help to potentiate the effect of the pesticide, make it work harder or make it work better uh, against weeds or insects. And these these uh, ingredients include things like metals like lead or arsenic, cadmium. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and so things like surfactants and other toxic organocarbon chemicals and you know, when you mentioned, um, I think you mentioned gut-disturbing chemicals. So, you know, some of our pesticides like glyphosate actually are classed in the pharmaceutical industry as an antibiotic. So there's no doubt about it that some of the ingredients in our pesticides have a very big impact on our gut microbiome and on the bacteria inside our, our bodies that we rely on so heavily for health. Yeah, absolutely. And they're such fragile little ecosystems and, you know, 
that's great that we can break these down but then you've got that cumulative effect that if we're eating non-organic more than once a day then maybe we're not able to get on top of um, these things certainly not um, things like lead or aluminium that accumulate in us anyway that we find very difficult to break down if at all is that right so some of these tiny tiny trace elements over time that aren't the actual active ingredient but are the other um, adjuncts as you call them um, those might be an issue for us in terms of long-term health yeah so I, th- I think what you're talking about and, and what you're alluding to is is the cocktail of chemicals that we can be exposed to not my kind of cocktail pass me the no. margarita <laughs> I hear you well actually that's a really good point because then we've got our toxicants of choice too like our coffees in the morning and our, <laughs> you know maybe a, a little tipple on the weekend or whatever it might be but you know, all of these chemicals that we're talking about and, and even the study of, of toxicity or toxicology, toxicology, they, uh, toxicology has very few tools for analysing, you know, the complexity of how different chemicals work together. And uh, it's a very, the nature of how these chemicals can work together in the body is very unpredictable and there are combined effects often. So, you know, just a little tiny tiny part per billion of lead over a week's worth of exposure to a particular type of pesticide combined with a daily cup of coffee combined with some phthalate in a in a fragranced candle or or bubble bath you know these toxic values don't necessarily necessarily add up in just a a simple one plus one kind of way they really can add up in a a one plus one can end up eating sort of uh, end up equaling 12 instead of just two Absolutely. And there just isn't the research on the cocktails that we're putting in our system. You know, it's not just the organic food that we should start to be trying to implement, which we're just about to go into now, but also, you know, that just we don't factor that bubble bath plus the candle plus the sprayed spinach plus the, and it's not to freak people out because of course this is all about solutions, but it is true that science just doesn't do studies on what the factors are when we combine all this stuff well science just doesn't have the tools so there are major limitations to to science and um and and we don't have the tools to analyze complexly things like that there are just too many variables but it's important to to comment on the fact that the current regulatory standards are based on single chemical exposures so when we talk about sort of a safe level of pesticide residue in our in our food in things like the Australian Total Diet Study, um, we're talking about a safe level of pesticide residue based on the toxicological reports of that pesticide in isolation. Yes, in an adult. Yes, not a child. Yeah, we're not looking at how these single uh, pesticides or single chemicals may have a different impact on the biochemistry of a developing child, whether that child be in utero or, you know, a baby or a toddler, et cetera. Mm. Um, Now, I'm sensing that we're going down freak out mode in the the interwebs. I can feel people freaking out. No, no, it's all good. It's me too because, uh, you know, it's big, this topic. It's big. So what are some of the health implications of pesticides? Is it different for different ones? What are we looking at in terms of just give us the really crappy news on what these things can do to us long term? 
Well, the answer is we don't really know. We look to occup- we look to occupational exposures of organophosphate pesticides to get an idea of what really high exposures can do. So, you know, people like farmers who are using these things on their hands and, and their clothes and boots are covered and, they you know, they bring it into the home and things like that. And, and really high-dose chronic exposures like that can ab- – there's a huge body of evidence that supports um, these exposures lead to things like um, Alzheimer's and uh, and early uh, dementias and immune compromise and uh, confusion and lack of concentration and disorientation, even uh, even drowsiness and, and sleep disturbance. However, it's unlikely that most of the people listening in are going to have exposures to that level based on occupational exposures. So at low-level exposures, we're really looking more at things like, again, we can see some immune compromise and a little bit of foggy mind and lack of concentration and poor recall, but really we see changes in behaviour in children when they're having very high exposures and um, perhaps, you know, behavioural problems, uh, discoordination, perhaps even delays in learning rates and things like that. But where most of the study lies, because this is all over time, we're talking about epidemiological research here, where we're looking at exposures that are really just mild to moderate over a period of decades can have an impact on a child. So for example, urinary pesticide metabolites in a pregnant woman having an impact on uh, the risk of that child being um, on the autism spectrum or having ADHD at the age of six and eight and ten. Right. What we don't have is is the evidence of short-term exposures and how they impact health short-term. Yeah, yeah, okay. So where let's let's talk about some of the most heavily sprayed crops. Let's start thinking about what we could prioritize, maybe what we could start to ditch first if we we could build a sort of top 5 if you like. What's the most heavily sprayed stuff out there in our in that we would be exposed to in a regular shop at the supermarket? Well, Alex, I'd really love to answer you in a really clear way, but a great deal of the research that we're leaning on, you know, for me to be able to try to answer this question for you is American research. So a fabulous resource for all of your all of your listeners is obviously the Environmental Working Group's research that they publish annually. Yeah, we love their Clean 15 and Dirty Dozen. Yeah, the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. When it comes to Australian data, we simply don't have a body like the Environmental Working Group that's investing funds into, into finding this out. We, we do have the 23rd Australian um, Diet Study. We have access to some of the information there. And essentially what that what that surmises or reveals is that the level of pesticide residues and other contaminants on Australian food that's non-organic is low and within acceptable safety limits. So this is this is what comes out of our Australian government-funded research. There are there were um, foods identified like foods with very high surface area, like broccoli and green leafies and perhaps foods that need more repeated application of pesticides like berries um, highlighted in the Australian research to have um, increased pesticide exposure compared to some others. But uh, how I'm guiding my clients um, in clinic is really mostly leaning on the Environmental Working Group's um, published research. So 
We're talking about things like apples having higher residue, grapes, kales, spinaches, um, cucumbers and tomatoes. And uh, we shouldn't overlook our grains like wheat. So wheat, wheat is also very heavily sprayed as a crop. Absolutely. And they, they spray it just before harvest to make the harvest easier, don't they? They do. So a lot of the Roundup Ready crops... And this is, by the way, not every farmer out there. You know, there might be someone listening going, I don't. But as a general um, industry rule, it seems to be on trend to do that. That's right. Look, there are a lot of farmers out there that are my complete heroes, Mm, protecting our food chain and, you know, just uh, doing the best that they can. And maybe the occasional sprays needed because of, a you know, a locust plague or something like that. But what we're talking about here is sort of more industrial, big, large-scale supermarket foods. But, um, you know, there are a lot of crops that get a huge amount of organophosphate pesticide spray and, and glyphosate spray because of the genetic modification of some seeds so that they become tolerable against um, against against pesticides. So we, we sort of thought that this would end up leaving us with less pesticide residue on our food, but it's done the opposite. So crops like corn and soy and canola and uh, and wheat, they are given a last spray right before harvest just to sort of protect them and, and uh, keep the bugs off as they then go for their transport to um, to distribution. No good at all. And we're not immune to that in Australia either because, of course, there's a lot of um, packaged food, processed food especially, that you see very clearly says made from local and imported ingredients. And we don't know where these ingredients have come from. And given that 90% of the world's soy is genetically modified, uh, high 80s percentage for corn, you know, it's really hard for us to trace. And there's certainly not in Australia a really visible um, and clear labelling law around that to protect us in our decision making, is there? Absolutely not. Absolutely. And it's just so easy to overlook. And and what I haven't really mentioned are, are things like imported teas and imported spices and imported coffee. These things can be a very, very big problem too. And I know my job is to talk about food, but I don't want to overlook cotton. Yeah. No, the pesticide residues on, on imported cotton clothing and sheets and things like that. Yeah, and it's interesting um, because if you look at Australia, apparently it, it seems that a lot of farmers have had to move to genetically modified cotton because, um, and to quote a farmer, it doesn't really work so well to do organic here. But then that to me breeds, and I'd really love to see your point of view on this, the question, should we be farming things that don't naturally work in the environment? It's a, it's a wonderful question and my mind jumps to a whole new topic which is the farming of Atlantic salmon in Tasmania. But, uh, look, I think, you know, we'll come to this when we're talking strategy but certainly when you're buying a fruit or a vegetable that's locally grown and certainly Australian grown and you know that it's in season, you can feel confident that it's going to have less pesticide residue over it and that it's going to have a much higher amount of natural plant-based phytochemicals and antioxidants that actually help and protect your cells uh, and and help your body metabolize and break down the pesticides. So uh, I agree with you that, you know, that's a really big question, Alex. It's huge. I just thought I'd throw it in there. I'm the tangent queen, so. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's a great question. And 
Look, one of the traps that I want to encourage all of the listeners to, to watch out for and to, and to actively avoid is the trap of just becoming a very passive and non-critical thinking consumer. And, and that's exactly what you're encouraging people not to do with your podcast, Alex. So I love your question. And uh, to get everyone thinking about these things is really important. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of the, one of the big discussions when we were talking about um, grain feeding beef, uh, cattle, a couple of years ago on my page and there was some really interesting discussion and this lovely Canadian woman chimed in and said that her dad was a, a cattle farmer, um, reared beef, and because there's snow 10 months of the year where their farm is, of course the animal has, has to eat grain in the wintertime and it brought me back to that kind of revelatory question like, well, should we be farming cattle in that part of the world if they can't eat species-appropriate food? Mm. It's, it's really interesting um, to, yeah. to think about. But, um, but I guess where we could move on to from here, given we know um, those apples, the berries, the green leafies, the broccoli, uh, the cucumber tend to be the most sprayed, would you then recommend... Someone's coming into your clinic, you know, they're talking about making better choices in their shopping basket. Would they be your go-to um, priority list for switching to organic or spray-free? 100%. So uh, it's not always about, you know, because, and we'll talk about organics on a budget, I'm sure that that'll come up. But, you know, essentially if, if one has to prioritise their organic dollar, uh, we can look to animal produce first and foremost, and, and that really helps reduce our exposures or limit our exposures to some of those, um, you know, uh, we call them poisons without passports, some of those really long-life organochlorine pesticides and, and uh, you know, the DDTs and things like that when we're looking towards organic animal produce. But the second best place to prioritise your organic dollar is definitely on that dirty dozen list. And just to eat more, you know, if you've only got a very limited organic dollar, just to choose to eat from the Clean 15 list is a fantastic idea. So I can't say, Alex, that I buy organic berries and organic grapes a lot of the time. I simply just don't buy them. Mm. And I'd rather... They're expensive. It's crazy. It's wild. And, you know, on an honest naturopath income, you know, I'd rather give the kids, you know, some chopped up pineapple um, and, uh, you know, some kiwi fruit. And look, I do invest in organic apples. I'm one of those firm believers in that uh, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. So my kids, I'm lucky they love a good apple and I, I don't mind spending nine or $10 a kilo on really nice organic apples when they're in season for that purpose. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, so more into this budgeting, obviously everybody wants to do the best they can for their family. Um, and one of the things that I always challenge families to first ask themselves when they're saying, I want to swap and incorporate more organics is to ask, will you be assuming that you're just going to be changing your entire shopping basket full of the current processed packets of weirdness and all the stuff that we have in the average Aussie shopping basket, the cereals and all the things, um, to an organic shopping basket. Because if you think you're going to be doing that, then you will be spending two to three times more than you're currently spending on your groceries. But if you're moving from the packet 
heavy shopping basket to the produce heavy shopping basket and starting to cook more and make things from scratch more, then there are some real savings to be made in changing the mindset on a much broader scale first before you dive into making swaps. What, what are your thoughts on that? I wholeheartedly agree with you. So a a huge part of my day every day in supporting people in living better and and achieving their health goals is actually about going back to basics. So um, I agree with you entirely to to be um, going back to basics with uh, cooking recipes from scratch and taking your own lunch sometimes and buying in bulk, even if you decide to go in in a big bulk order for dried organic goods like dried grains and dried nuts and seeds and, and legumes with um, with a couple of friends to bring your costs down. You know, you can be buying some things if you've got the storage. You can be buying some things in kilos, five kilo sort of loads and sharing them um, and sharing the cost with, with friends and colleagues. So there's nothing wrong with doing a bit of stockpiling yeah. and a bit of uh, batch cooking and freezing for later. Um, and, and even, you know, looking back to the olden days, well, that's when my kids think I was a kid, but I mean real olden <laughs> days, um, the real olden days where we did used to stockpile things like mangoes and berries and, and preserve them, make jams or chutneys and things like that. So that's a, it's a, it's a, it takes a little bit of mental energy, but that's a fantastic strategy for going, um, going organic, organic on a budget. But some of those other things we talked about, like buying in season, uh, things in season tend to be that little bit more affordable because they're they're um, the environment's favouring their production, so they're they're produced in in higher loads, um, and you can also be encouraged to get out of your comfort zone with some foods when you're just focused on buying in season. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? I get a wonderful fruit and veg box. Um, full of organic or unsprayed um, uh, spray-free um, produce and I get that delivered every Tuesday. And what I love, I was really frustrated by it at first, but what I love is that actually it's an invitation to be curious about new ingredients and if you've got Brussels sprouts coming at you five weeks in a row, you better be sure that you're going to start to get a bit more creative with those Brussels sprouts so that you can stomach them by week five. And, you know, it's made me a more creative cook, I have to say, shopping seasonally, um, locally and organic, definitely. Over time, this increases your confidence in the kitchen too. So I know it sounds unusual as a, as a nutritionist, but, you know, the kitchen's not really been my forte. I've been in practice 11 or 12 years now and uh, it's only the last couple of years that I've started to to experiment more and to and to gain a bit of confidence. And there's lots and lots of errors that happen on that on that journey. But um, that is a big bonus of taking a, an organics delivery box each week. Uh, you can sh- start small and increase over time, but you're only going to get produce that's in season. And uh, you, you do have to extend yourself and I call it the learning zone, getting out of that comfort zone with your cooking. Oh, I love that, the learning zone instead of the comfort zone. Brilliant. Mm. And um, certainly, you know, and I don't know um, where a huge number of your listeners are sitting as they listen to this, but, you know, certainly becoming uh, a part of a food co-op or there are some fabulous uh, weekly local farmers markets around us here in Bondi and uh, you know making sure you can uh, go and visit those and be inspired by the different colors and the different produce and and even have a chat with the producer 
um, as to, you know, as to what they had to do with their crop. And it's just that farmers are a fabulous, under-celebrated, entertaining, fabulous bunch. And oh, just so true. They are the reason we have beautiful food on our tables every day. It's, um, and I think you you mentioned, you know, speaking to a farmer, talking to them about how they farm and, and um and if you could have your kid by your side when you had that conversation you're mm. setting the next generation up to be curious and to question where their food comes from and how it's grown and i think you really that is a priceless gift that we can give our children in this whole exercise of trying to grow more conscious peeps out there that that um that are curious if we're curious then we're more demanding as as consumers and as eaters aren't we I agree entirely, and and I think I've mentioned this uh, this rule I applied with my kids when they were much younger in in a previous interview with you, perhaps Alex. But I I had a rule: if you can't tell me where it came from, you can't eat it. Ooh, that's a good challenge for the parents out there listening. I love that. Yeah, it worked quite well. It yeah. really quite well. Well, it, and it gets them wondering: well, where is this from? And you know, I remember. My son, you know, just when he started to get conscious that he was the kid drinking the water at the parties and everyone else was drinking the apple juice, he was like, hold on, I don't know that I'm cool with this. And so we watched a YouTube on how like regular off-the-shelf long-life apple juice was made. And I said, do you think that looks anything like the original apple? You know, I asked him questions and he's very, um, you know, kids are so black and white and they're really good at weighing up whether something's real or fake or, you know, they're very good at it given um, the evidence. And he was like, that's not real food. No, definitely not. And they're such sponges for fantastic new information. So what a gift you gave him, Alex. It's just gorgeous. Hasn't touched the stuff since. <laughs> I'm sure he'll probably <laughs> I'll have some horror story of him drinking Coke as a teen, as many of us will. But I'm, I'm pretty sure and confident in the fact that whatever we do to lay the groundwork when they're little is something that they will return to even if they stray. They always come back to their foundations, Alex. So we're laying the groundwork now. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, So I might lay a little challenge out for everybody out there listening who's still thinking at this point of our chat, this is insurmountable. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to tackle first. Make a list of your family's favorite five produce-oriented summer fruit and veg Um, Do the same with the winter fruit and veg. That way, no matter where you are in the world listening to this, you can work with the season that you're currently in and just swap those five to organic. Just start there. Um, And as Tabitha mentioned before, that, um, that meat obviously being something that eats agriculture uh, as a start, whether it's grasses and um, whatever's in those grasses from that farm or whether it's grains, um, to really start to have a look at bulk buying, buying cheaper, um, instead of buying pretty little um, breasts and tenderloins, buying whole organic chickens, which can often mean it's the same price per kilo, just making that swap, if not sometimes even cheaper. So I'm going to throw that challenge out to everybody listening tonight and um, and maybe if you want to share what you're swapping or share any pictures, you can hashtag LowToxLife either on Instagram or um, anywhere on social media so that we can we can see how everybody's going and I'll share those with you, Tab. I think that sounds magic. And, and Alex, you, you've nailed it because it's that old adage, you know, how do you eat an, how do you eat an elephant? 
And it's just one bite at a time. And it's about those small, simple little adjustments or swap-ins and swap-outs that you make that over, over a fair bit of time is going to have a really profound impact. It really does. And I remember when we swapped to organics, um, we did it quite slowly, maybe over about six months. I did a huge kind of change and then there were a few little things that took a little longer because of the price and just that mental hurdle, which so many people go through. But I remember thinking the broccoli tastes way better than me needing to get my nails done. <laughs> so I just started doing my own nails and eating the organic broccoli because you just cannot go back once you've tasted that. There's no way. There's something very, very nourishing about about knowing that you've invested in the highest quality food that you can. But I just just to you know be really real with all of your listeners, I wanted to to I sort of dob myself in to say that I I would say only between sixty and seventy percent of our grocery shop is organic, Alex. There are definitely meals that I eat out with my family. Oh, same, um, absolutely, and I think. You bring up a really good point. Even in just saying that, I have to specify, I have to make it super clear, there is no black and white. And if we try and aim for perfection, then we are very quickly able to start to feel like we've failed when we ate the non-organic potato chip at the friend's house or, you know, and we really don't want to be feeling any of that. Everyone's just doing the best they can. Um, And for us, yeah, there'd definitely be at least even though we're pretty staunchly organic now in our groceries, I'm certainly not stressing out when I'm in a lovely restaurant or a cafe with a friend having lunch. And I just think, you know, because you're in control of the most of your choices at home, you can really go with the flow out there knowing, as you said, Tabitha, at the start, that we're able to clear quite effectively a lot of this new generation of pesticide in the one-off here and there exposures, um, even if we do you know, eat it out and about. I, I hear, hear. And uh, there are a couple of things I want to talk about when, we, when we're discussing the clearance of these chemicals. And the first one is just some Australian research that was published last year by Professor Mark Cohen and Lisa Oates. Oh, yes. Love this fabulous mind. research um, was, uh, it didn't really give us a great deal as to the health effects of pesticides, but it very, very, was a very clear first step in expanding our understanding of what does an organic diet do in our bodies. So, you know, uh, groups were divided up into receiving an 80% certified, Australian certified organic diet, 80% for seven days, and then they swapped to a conventional diet for seven days. And their urine was measured at the end of each of these seven days and they swapped back again. And at the end of the seven days on the respective diets, their urine was measured for the the DAP metabolites, so the, the breakdown products of the organophosphate pesticides that they, they were studying. And there was such a significant reduction in the urinary metabolites of the pesticide by up to 90% wow. after seven days on an 80% certified organic diet. So in terms of, I found that research when I read it uh, extremely empowering. The small changes that you make actually have very measurable impact on the body's load. I love that. And just to know that we can really quickly start to feel that our bodies are going, yeah, cheering us on, high-fiving and going, you guys rock for getting rid of that stuff. 
taking a load off. Yeah, yeah. you're literally and, taking a load off. That's mm-hmm. we need a we need a t-shirt for that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we could get some sweatbands. Even yeah. <laughs> we're thinking merch. Now, okay, so my last question is, and this is such a great segue because you just mentioned this experiment um, and this published research. Obviously, there'll still be some stuff hanging around in our bodies from our past. What are some of your favourite gentle detoxifying tips for people um, as we start to move a few organic ingredients and produce into the mix of our shopping basket? Um, sure, the research says we're naturally going to be showing less toxins in us anyway, but is, is there anything we can do to just help these little buggers along so that they they go away quickly? Yeah, sure. So in terms of in terms of body burden, you know, a lot of these concepts that I'm going to mention now are fabulous for uh, most of our exposures. So, you know, besides limiting our exposures, which we've talked a little bit about this evening, um, we also have to sort of build our bodies up um, such that we're protecting them. So what I'm trying to say here is that you can um before even we talk about detox there are things that we can do to build our body's resilience against exposures and i'll put it bluntly you know uh, a developing child who's not getting in the iron that they need uh, or not getting an adequate zinc in their diet or is really really under par with their essential fats or their iodine um and a lot of these trace uh, minerals and, and nutrients actually are used as cofactors to, uh, you know, to help our body's detoxification capacities, but also to help protect our brains and to help us grow. So really to ensure that we're as robust as possible, we have to have a really robust diet that's well balanced, that has lots of different colors coming in, lots of fruit and veggies, um, uh, where we're very well hydrated. And it is mostly our minerals like iron and zinc that when we're low, our um, our resilience is compromised and we become essentially a little bit more spongy uh, to some of these exposures. So, you know, we, we can build and protect and, and boost our resilience, absolutely. But Further to that, in terms of enhancing detoxification at the risk of sounding crass, we're just wanting to make sure that we've got all of our channels of elimination open. So <laughs> That's perfect because I actually have the wonderful um, Helen Patter and discussing poop on our oh, very right. next podcast. Oh, so naturopathic. Great that you mentioned topic. it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I'm getting rid of the taboo around poo. I think we all need to talk about it way more. Just to just to break the ice about bowel motions, I I have to admit to having a Bristol stool chart laminated in my clinic. So (laughs) some people who get a little bit bashful discussing it, I just whip out the chart and they can point. Makes it a little bit easier for them. I love it. <laughs> then, uh, you know, channels of elimination. So I'm talking about hydration. You know, my kids, it's a bit of a mantra in my house. As soon as they wake up, I say, have you had a glass of water, darling? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that that's something that will be really in their psyche. By the time they're adults, they'll be passing that on to their kids. But, you know, flushing the kidneys when you wake, making sure you're drinking plenty of good quality water all throughout the day, herbal teas, uh, coconut waters are fine, you know, things like this, staying very well hydrated. Uh, but also really going for your five and two. And I just want to reassure that getting your five and two, so your two serves of fruit a day and your five serves of veggies a day, it's a fantastic intervention on so many levels, even if it's not always organic. So please don't give yourself a hard time. 
veggies and fruits are, you know, are just magnificent for our bodies. And the higher plant content that our diet has, uh, again, the faster our elimination. And I don't just mean from fiber, all of those plant-based antioxidants and um, phytochemicals or phytonutrients. Yeah. Uh, so basically actually- what you're saying there is it's better to eat a non-organic um, head of broccoli than it is to eat an organic packet of potato chips. Yes, I guess you've taken the words out of my mouth. Yes, nature's bounty of rainbow fruit and vegetables, herbs and spices, parsleys, corianders, you know, microalgaes like chlorellas and spirulinas. These are magnificent foods that augment our body's detox capacities. So, um, you know, so many recipes I can think of that I'd normally be sharing with clients if I was sitting with them, you know, detox pestos and green detox soups and things like this. Just go go for colour and uh, never skimp on your five and two. Fantastic. I love that advice because, again, it's about eating food and what we can add in to make us more resilient and detox better. We often think of everything we have to take out, but it's a beautiful thing when we're thinking what are the good things we can add in and we'll share some recipes, some great um, little pesto and smoothie and soup recipes in the show notes too. Oh, lucky listeners. I think that sounds perfect. And just crowding out the diet uh, with heaps of fabulous food and, and not focusing on the nots but focusing on the yeses. Love it. Oh, my gosh, so much goodness in there. Thank you so much for joining me to talk pesticides. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of great information that uh, you shared tonight and we'll make uh, the transcript available in the show notes because there were quite a few little things referenced there that I know people will want to refer back to. Um, Tab, where can we find you? Where's your website, social? Tell us. Well, we can leave this in all of the afternotes too, but my, my website is awakenyourhealth.com.au and um, I do offer a free download on my website for listeners. So I've created a handout called How Can I Reduce My Day-to-Day Chemical Exposures and you're welcome to download that if you're listening tonight and, and uh, you want some extra tips that I'd normally be sharing with clients and Alex, um, I know we're really low on time, but there's just so much more we can do about this topic. You know, I besides- know. There is. Can you come back? Let's do yes. a part two. Take me back. Take okay. me back to um, a session two when you're ready and we can sort of knuckle down on some of the topics that we didn't quite get time for. Yeah, I love it. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. We will definitely be speaking to you again. Uh, have a great day. Thanks, Alex. Love your work. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode of the Low Tox Life podcast. I would love for you to check out the show notes as well, and you can find those at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. Now, if there's anything that inspired you from today's episode, I would so love to hear and have you share that maybe online. Use the Low Tox Life hashtag, and I can be found on Twitter or Instagram at A-L-E-X-X underscore Stuart S-T-U-A-R-T. Now, if you liked what you heard today and you want to join us again next time, subscribing is a great way to be notified of a new episode. So hit subscribe and I look forward to welcoming you next time. Bye for now. For your ears. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.